Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm currently sitting in the offices of Matrix Chambers, just off the Grazing Road in London, waiting to speak with Sir Anthony Hooper, a former Court of Appeal judge who was commissioned by Michael Belloff QC, the chairman of the IWF Ethics Commission, to investigate the alleged violation of the Code of Ethics by Leila Shevrikova, a Russian marathon runner, Valentin Balaknachev, the president of the Russian Athletics Federation and former treasurer of the IAAF, Gabriel Dolly, the former director of the Medical and Anti-Doping Department of the IAAF. In this interview, I'll be speaking with Sir Anthony, or Tony as he prefers to be known, about his experience and reflection on the investigation into these individuals, how he sees the roles of whistleblowers in sport, what powers he thinks ethics commissions of Sports Federation and their investigators should have if they are to successfully tackle corruption in sport, what experiences and skills an investigator should possess if they are to be successful, and what he thinks sport as a whole can learn from these cases. It should be a great interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Tony, um, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule um, to talk with me today. Um, recently, you've been involved in the investigation for the IWF's Ethics Commission. And um, before we go on to that, could you just give a brief introduction into your legal background? Well, my background is I was first of all uh, an academic at universities both here. Um, and in Canada, and I finished off in Toronto and Montreal. Uh, I then came back to England, where I practiced at the essentially the criminal bar. And um, in after about 18, 19 years of solid practice, uh, I became a High Court judge in 1995 and a Court of Appeal judge in 2004. I retired from that in 2012 and uh, since then have, I'm a, now a member of Matrix Chambers and uh, was fortunate enough to be asked to carry out the investigation by the IAAF Ethics Commission chaired by Michael Belloff. And can you outline what your remit was? Because it was a very tightly... It, it's, a t it's a tight remit. You, you are asked... A complaint is made, that complaint is evaluated uh, by uh, the, uh, a panel of the Ethics Commission of the IAAF, and then if they feel that there's a sufficient case against uh, identified individuals, they ask for an investigation into those individuals. So as is now public knowledge, I investigated uh, four uh, persons, uh, Balitnichev and Melnikov from Russia, and Dr. Gabriel Dolly from the IAAF, uh, and a consultant to the IAAF, Papamasat Diak. Uh, last August, I completed my report and uh, made recommendations as to what I thought were the appropriate charges to be considered by a panel of the Ethics Commission. Uh, those recommendations were accepted. 
the panel sat on between the 16th and 18th of December of last year, and as is now known following the publication of the decision on the 8th of January, uh, three of them were uh, banned for life and one banned for uh, a much shorter period. And during how difficult was that investigation? Because we're just reading through your, your report, it's quite an extensive report, and there's a lot of information to go through, so it must have been uh, considerably time-consuming and, and difficult to get hold of some of that information. But I think, just winding back a bit, both as a barrister, particularly uh, doing criminal cases, and then as a High Court judge and as a Court of Appeal judge, one gets used to... Um, uh, summarising and putting together evidence and one gets used to, as a judge, reaching conclusions on the available evidence, uh, whether uh, adverse or otherwise, to an individual or to a company. And so what I did was um, write to uh, all of the the, uh, persons I was investigating and to a number of other witnesses and ask them to explain uh, or answer my questions. Putting all that together uh, led to the report. I did not interview um, in person. I did not go to uh, Monte Carlo, for example, to uh, visit the uh, ethics, to visit the IAAF. I did it by simply sending by email questions and requests for an explanation. And under the IAAF rules, all those that I was investigating were obliged to uh, cooperate with me and to answer my questions. And the ramifications for them if they didn't? Well, I didn't have that situation. (laughs) But at least one of the ramifications is that the uh, panel of the, if it proceeds to charging, then the panel can draw adverse conclusions from the failure to cooperate. And I have not finished the investigation. Uh, I'm currently uh, investigating uh, one more person uh, and um, there may be others to follow, I do not know. Uh, So I can't discuss the, the, the actual, uh, what, what I found, or my conclusions, although they're all now available on, on the internet, but I can perhaps draw back and look at some of the issues that surround such an investigation. And what are some of those sort of key issues? And, and I think the key issue for me is that as an investigator for the Ethics Commission, I have no power to force people to cooperate with me or, and more importantly, I have no power to require law enforcement agencies to make inquiries on my behalf or indeed to give me the results of of their inquiries, whether ongoing or not. And, And this becomes clear from my report There was uh, an important document uh, 
a transfer of money uh, from Singapore to Russia. And I would like to have known much more about the uh, background to that transfer, uh, to look at bank statements and to understand uh, who had used that account. And uh, I was able to uh, get in touch with Singapore, where the account was, uh, but ultimately uh, the authorities could not help me uh, saying that this was all covered by banking secrecy. Likewise, uh, I contacted the uh, French law enforcement agency that is investigating a, a number of people arising out of the uh, IAAF uh, case. And again, uh, I could not be, sh I could not take possession of. Uh, documents which could have been important for my inquiry. That has led me to wonder aloud now whether or not as a condition of membership of a sporting federation, whether it be athletics or um, cycling or basketball, baseball, whatever it may be, that as a condition of being a member of the particular uh, federation, member states shouldn't be obliged to cooperate or to help uh, cooperate with an investigation or to help the investigator so that I could have gone, for example, to Singapore and armed with some legal authority, I would have been allowed access uh, to the documents that I wanted to see. I, I suspect, and, and I am new to this field, that this is a problem not just for me, uh, but for many other investigators. I have not followed closely the investigation by Mr. Garcia, the American lawyer, into FIFA, and I have not spoken to him but I would suspect that he ran into precisely the same kind of problems I ran into in being unable to obtain, for example, and I don't know anything about his investigation, but being unable to obtain bank statements or bank transfers or uh, emails. Uh, for example, I, in my investigation, I wanted to know who a particular person was who had a Gmail account. Now, if I'd had the power of the uh, FBI, no doubt uh, a, an order would have, could have been made, judicially or otherwise, to require uh, Google to tell me who was this person. It, it may have led me nowhere, uh, but on the other hand, it may have led me somewhere. Uh, I looked again this morning at the Lance Armstrong report by USADA. USADA have, I think, probably greater power than a number of um, sporting federations or, or bodies which support sporting federations. But I noticed there that uh, after the FBI had discontinued its investigation into Lance Armstrong, uh, USADA asked for the documents which the FBI had obtained in the course of the investigation, only to be told they couldn't have them. Uh, so 
I suspect this is a widespread problem. Now, one could say, well, leave it all to the police. And as you know, uh, it, the, the, the French uh, Financial Crime Unit is investigating a number of people whose names have appeared in the IAAF case. But that will not, would not enable an investigator to get hold of the material probably until such time as any trial has taken place, uh, which could be a very long time ago, depending on the complexity and number and complexity of the investigation. So it, it seems uh, to me uh, unfortunate that sporting federations such as the IAAF or um, the FIFA and others are not able to exercise powers to obtain material but essentially either have to go on what they have and hope that it's uh, sufficiently full or alternatively wait for the end of uh, what could be a prolonged criminal investigation. And if there's to be a trial, uh, then um, even then it will take a very long time um, to get hold of documents that you might want. And how does this compare to other sectors then? Because you've worked, you do a lot of work in relation to uh, whistleblowers, for example. For? In relation to whistleblowers. Well, uh, I mean, it is the same problem. Yeah. Essentially, if I was working, uh, if I was investigating um, a complaint made by a whistleblower, uh, I would probably be able to obtain access to all the corporate uh, documents which are a background to the complaint, but I would have no powers at all, uh, absence initiating civil proceedings, in order to get documents which might support or negate the complaint made by the whistleblower. So I don't think it's, it's not a problem unique to um, sporting federations. The thing about sporting federations, they're very much in the public eye. Yeah. And inevitably, with FIFA, with, um, I can't remember the precise name, is it the USI? The uh, UCI. UCI. With yeah. UCI uh, and IAAF, people are thinking, well, why aren't these organizations taking action? Why don't they get on with it? And I don't know the answer to those questions, but one of the answers that could be that actually it's very difficult to carry out an investigation unless you are armed with the powers that the FBI, um, the Serious Fraud Office, the French Financial Crime Agency. And so it means that federations, I think, probably have to rely upon whistleblowers. Yeah. And one has seen that very much in the case of the current IAAF uh, uh, case, is that uh, it was a combination of the journalist, uh, Hajo Sapelt, uh, and whistleblowers that led to there being enough evidence to initiate an investigation. So it's the, the journalists and or the whistleblowers who directly or indirectly present the material to the um, particular sporting federation 
which enables them to uh, initiate an investigation if there is a prima facie case. I've spoken to, um, I won't ask you direct questions about the report, having, yeah. having read it, because of your ongoing investigation. Um, however, I have spoken to Travis Tigart around the Lance Armstrong, who's the CEO yes. of the USA Entertainment. Absolutely. And, um, or US Entertainment. And it was an interesting point. I said to him, how do you, though, as a whistleblower, if you see something going on, it's something that struck me from the report, if you see something that's going on in your organisation, in a sporting body, and you suspect that there's some corrupt practices taking place, if that is your livelihood, your source of income, and, to find, and it's a very small, unfortunately, the sports sector is a very small community, and therefore, if you are to whistleblow, what protections are there in place? You know, what environment have we? Is there that's created that protects the whistleblowers? And it would appear that that seems to be one of the challenges in sport at the moment. That there's not um, too much in the way of protecting whistleblowers or encouraging them to come forward. I think. It, I mean, that is a, a, a worldwide problem. Uh, I have done a report for um, public concern at work about how whistleblowers should be treated. I've also done work for the General Medical Council on the same issue. Uh, it, it is a universal problem and uh, more often than not, or indeed very often put it that way, whistleblowers, genuine whistleblowers who raise a complaint end up being punished. They end up being sacked, discriminated against, harassed, uh, and um, the task of trying to have a climate where whistleblowers are welcomed is, is, is an extremely difficult task because corporate bodies, and I'm not now talking simply about sporting federations, corporate bodies tend to want to hold the line, they often have doubts about the validity of the whistleblowing, they may not like the whistleblower uh, as a person, and therefore there's a reaction, well, let's get rid of the whistleblower. It goes back to Shakespeare, um, killing the messenger. <laughs> uh, and how you change that, um, when one looks at the financial scandals involving LIBOR and Forex, it is to me extraordinary that um, whistleblowers did not come forward to say what was actually happening now. Maybe they did come forward and maybe they, their views or opinions were ignored. But in the case of the IAAF there are, and in the case of WADA, there are particular provisions rewarding whistleblowers in the sense that um, any sanction may be reduced uh, as a result of whistleblowing, but one can't underestimate the pressure upon whistleblowers. Uh, if one looks at the Harjo Sepil film, there was the Russian athlete who told her story to Harjo Sepil and then left the country. Such was her, no doubt, legitimate concerns um, about her own safety. And but. Even if you make provision for that, there is the problem that uh, th th there will probably be a sanction for the whistleblower. 
which may involve repayment, for example, of prize money, uh, suspension for a certain period of time. And so everything tends to encourage people not, so, not to speak out. So there's a, uh, two, two real points here then. So what, on the one hand, and I know that WADA suffered with this problem with data sharing, and this is an issue that I think law enforcement still have with passing information across, across borders. Well, on the one hand, you, essentially you're saying, you know, if there was a, a mechanism or body, let's say, to investigate, uh, that had investigatory powers, because, you know, to entrust essentially each federation um, with those powers would be, could be... Um, well, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, because <laughs> that would lead to competition among the various bodies. I think the simplest solution is for the member states of those federations to agree that they will provide assistance to an investigation being carried out by the ethics commission of that body. Uh, if you start going outside, then you add further problems because, say, I'm investigating a particular um, uh, case within, within a sporting federation. If the sporting federation, through its ethics commission or similar body, instructs me to carry out the investigation, I have ready or should have ready access to the material within that federation. Once you take it out and hand it over to some other body, then you've got issues of confidentiality, people not willing to cooperate, or whatever it may be. So I, I would prefer a simple system whereby member states give uh, sporting federations um, some compulsive powers. It would have to be subject to all kinds of maybe judicial control or executive control. I, I accept all that. Those are all details. But... Uh, I think what we want is we want these federations to be able to investigate speedily, effectively, and to obtain the best evidence that they can use in, in order uh, to take action against those who have been breaking the code. Given that not all sports federations are equal <laughs> in, <laughs> in terms of both funding, structure, um, you know, governance, Yes. Whole. Um, would it be an idea then to, to have uh, you know set principles for the structure of ethics commissions and whistleblowing? So the standard form across sport, there was a agreed set of uh, guidelines. I wouldn't was... object to that. No, I think that's uh, the, the more um, one publicly recognises the role of the whistleblower, uh, the the more likely it is that we will find out the scandals because. If you take a, a case of corruption within a fed, sporting federation or an alleged case of corruption, those involved are not going to tell people. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to be in their interest to reveal what's going on. Uh, only if someone on the inside says, look, this is what's been happening, or alternatively, a, a journalist of the calibre of uh, Hajo Seppold uh, um, uh, puts two and two together and makes four, uh, are you likely to be able to take it any further? Because ethics commissions inevitably depend upon a complaint, even though they can 
they, they can always, of course, help initiate a complaint, but it depends upon a complaint. Complaint depends upon, uh, if it's going to be processed, um, some form of prima facie evidence. And on, so reflecting on your position now slightly, yeah. how important is it to have someone like yourself involved who is um, independent? As you said, you, you know, you're not really... Um, you know, you're not familiar with some of the, the you know, the FIFA investigations, the um, the Lance Armstrong, etc. Well, I read, I, re I read Lance Armstrong because, of course, the USADA report into Lance Armstrong was a copybook uh, report. It was the kind of thing that we would all wish to emulate. Yeah. It was an extremely powerful report. Uh, it relied entirely almost entirely on human testimony, witnesses, whistleblowers, family members. There's very little, um, some corroborative documents, but essentially it, it was on human beings giving evidence uh, and uh, all credit. And so do you think the then, um, I'm, I'm determined to get this, this, this sort of characteristics really of what an investigation should be. So you've got extensive experience, you've been at the bar, you've been yeah. a judge, Yes. You've got this level of independence. I hope. I have extensive <laughs> experience of marshalling facts. And then I have extensive experience of, uh, of, of resolving factual disputes and making, in the case of an investigator, I make a recommendation or I, I say, in my belief, the ethics panel will find this and this and this rather than that, that and that. So I think... Um, experience counts uh, in these uh, investigations and then there's obviously as you say I mean some of the federations do not have a large number of funds and it may be that if, if a, a small federation should perhaps be willing to hand it over to WADA or some organization but I'd like the idea that the, the federation itself conducts the investigation um, that's what I would prefer. But through an independent ethics commission? Though. Definitely, definitely <laughs> through an independent ethics commission and then through an independent investigator who has no uh, knowledge at all of the organ. I had no knowledge at all of the IAAF uh, other than what one had read from time to time in the newspapers. And why is that important, well, do you think? It's important... To, to be independent and impartial, like any judge has to be. You, you don't sit on a judge on a case if you know the people involved. I think you'll agree. It was fascinating to hear Santony talk about these important issues and lessons that he's learned from the investigation and from his other extensive career in law to have someone with his level of objectivity critique what is going on at the moment in sport is particularly useful and one which I hope that those of you who are working in sport, whether as a lawyer or in the administration of sport, can take away some key points from and hopefully implement them to improve the fight against corruption in sport. If you want to know more about this or other areas in sports law and sports regulation, you can go to lawinsport.com or follow us on Twitter at lawinsport, or you can go to iTunes and SoundCloud to listen to previous interviews with other leading figures in sport. Well, that's all we have time for. I hope you enjoyed the show. Music